CITR 101.9 FM in Vancouver. Morning. Good day to you, sir. Hey, wait a minute, what the hell? Getting real tired of you ducking me, man. Yeah? Oh, my God. Thank you to all the donors who pledged their financial support during the CITR on-air fun drive. You are moved by your generosity and thank you for enabling us to purchase some new equipment and improve our programming. Do remember to stop by the station, pay your pledges, and pick up your prizes. We look forward to meeting you anytime between 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. on weekdays. Thank you again for your amazing response. Listen to our happy voices on the air, happier after we purchase new equipment for our studios. Thanks again. All right, let's go to the bank. Hey there. Good Wednesday afternoon to all of you and definitely a big happy December. My name is Tracy Fuller and this is the Arts Report for Wednesday, December 3rd, 2008. I've got a jam-packed show for you today, so I'm just going to get right to it. None of this uh, this blathering on like I usually do. So um, I had the honestly great pleasure of inviting a man who will undoubtedly be remembered as one of Canada's great filmmakers, sometime in the not-too-distant future, I hope, into the CITR studios last night. Um, he is a friend of mine, and his production company, Ethical Bacon Films, is putting out a new short in the very near future. Here's a taste of it now. Ladies and gentlemen, May I present to you the living and breathing office in its most pure state. And may I present to all of you out there in CITR land, Zachary Rothman, the producer, co-writer, and co-director of the Office Farm series Part 1, which is the first of hopefully many films in the Office Farm series. That's coming out of the Ethical Bacon production company, which is based right here in Vancouver. And uh, Zachary himself hails from Winnipeg, Manitoba, and has been making films for over 10 years. Earlier today he uh, mentioned that he can 
bench press, a medium-sized dog, and he's here with me in studio today. Thank you for joining me, Zach. Hello. So uh, we're here to talk about the Office Farm series. Why don't you tell me what inspired you to make part one of this film? Well, uh, I used to temp for a living, mm -hmm. office temp. And for those of you who haven't done it, uh, it's soul-killing. Um, you, uh, you get placed by a temp agency into someone else's desk who's maybe sick or on maternity leave, maybe for a day, maybe for two days, maybe for a week. If you're lucky, you get a month. Mm -hmm. um, and you sit at their desk doing their office work, which tends to be clerical and moving one thing to another box, moving that box to another place kind of work. And you'd sit at their desk and and you look at the things that they use to um, uh, to hold on to what they used to be, uh, the person that they've they've left behind, um, little plush toys, uh, <laughs> photos uh, of family, friends, and little vacations and things. And um, like I said, it's soul killing. So you sit there and you stare at their things, usually not doing anything at all, getting mm. paid for it. Um, and one day I'd kind of had enough and I, and I'd also, I'd begun to notice that, um, the children of these office workers as depicted in the photos, people that I'd never met before, they looked particularly vacuous. Mm. So one night I was working at a credit counseling firm at about 11, 11 PM, which is not the happiest place you could be. No, I can think of better places to be at 11 PM. <laughs> and, um, I started, I decided I was going to gather up all the photos in the office. So I started gathering up these photos and I went over to the photocopier and I started photocopying photos of children um, and collecting them as evidence um, that I would later maybe present as part of a, a study of these children. And my boss walked by me and was kind of like, what are you, what are you doing with all these photos? And I, and I you know, I was particularly low in, in uh, morale at that point. And so I told them, I said, you know, I'm, I'm, I think these children are maybe mutated and uh, <laughs> doing this thing. And he kind of just looked at me and went, oh, okay. Just carry on as normal. Yeah, so, you know, brought, brought my little binder <laughs> home with these photos. And I started looking through it. And instead of being like, oh, okay, I was kind of like, well, this is, this is a path I don't know if I want to go down. So mm -hmm. I started thinking about writing a film. Um, so how many photos did you leave the office with that day? Oh, Probably a dozen or so. I made some notes on them. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they're black and white. I have still have them somewhere. Really? Yeah, they're they're creepy. I can't show them. Um, show people. Fair enough. But then, but then, how did your partner get involved in this production? Uh, well, John Fasoshin, my partner, he he came to me with an idea. Um, he was walking home late at night, and he looked up into an office window. And when he was standing on one corner of the street, he could see a photocopier. When he was standing on the other corner, he could see um, just a hallway leading down into an office bullpen. From another vantage point, he could see straight into the, what he thought was the boss's office. And we talked about making a film that was you know, somewhat constrained by three angles where he could tell a short story that way. And we thought, well, that would be a neat filming experiment. He took me down there. I stood on the street corner. And this office window that he had imagined this stuff, I don't know, I don't know when he was on that night, but <laughs> but it wasn't even it wasn't even an office. You know, I was looking at like a bulletin board or like a and a fluorescent light, and that not was not even it. close to what he not described. even close. So then we started talking. Well, we wanted to tell the story about restrictions like that had restrictions, and we said, well, let's tell a story and not have any restrictions. So 
the film that we wrote, which is the larger Office Farm uh, project, um, you know, it's got animation, musical numbers. Um, it's black and comedic and takes leaps where uh, I think other films were are afraid to go. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're completely free, and I, I think it's, uh, it's one of the best things I've co-written. So you, you say that from the larger piece, Office Farm Part 1 is focused on one particular character. Can you talk a little bit about why you've chosen Kevin as the mm. focal point for this first in the series? Well, I guess we chose it for a couple of reasons. One was um, Kevin... I mean, Kevin is my inspiration for the film. He is the temp worker who believes he's an anthropologist studying mm-hmm. the office worker. Um, we've taken a number of steps down the road from where I would have gone uh, had I kept my studies up um, and taken it in some pretty dark territory. The other reason we chose Kevin is, you know, we've tried to get this film produced as a as a single unit. Um, a much larger, longer piece. A much larger, longer piece. And uh, people were, quite frankly, afraid of it. Mm. Um, I think I think there's a number of reasons for it. Um, but we wanted to make a, a film that would show what our vision was and that, yes, it made sense, and, yes, it's amazing. And uh, we're almost there. It's almost finished, and I'm really, really happy with it. Do you think the audience nowadays that people really want to see a different way of telling the story? I mean, Vancouver is known as Hollywood North, and and often there is the Hollywood-esque treatment of all the films we see in our theaters, and Canada has unfortunately done a terrible job of promoting its own filmmakers and its own films. And, and Do you think there there's a hunger to see something different, something that like the Office Farm series? Yeah, well, I certainly hope so, and I, I think that, I think that, particularly British Columbia, being so close to Hollywood, both in, um, you know, getting the money from there, producing their shows, um, and also being physically close um, relative to other Canadian places, it's, um, it does a lot of Hollywoodish things, and it's boring. Mm-hmm. I mean, you look at TV numbers and movie numbers, and people aren't going to the films anymore. So mm-hmm. why would you want to make a derivative Hollywood film? And I think a lot of people have grown up making these kinds of films and TV in Vancouver. Not all. There are good projects. But people get lazy. They want to make something that has certain things that are that are clear-cut, that are easy to digest. And in, easy to sell, maybe. And easy to sell. Um, and this is a dark film. Well, good, because God knows that... We need a little bit more uh, authenticity and a little more challenge, or at least I prefer to be challenged as an audience member. Why do you think producers continue to choose the safe choices? What, is it just because of the money, or is it? are there not enough producers that have ambition or have that keen eye? Because it seems like there is a disconnect between the filmmakers like yourself and between audience members like myself who really want to see each other in the larger spaces, mm-hmm. but we just don't, neither of us, get there together. Well, I think it's a number of things. First of all, I think there's a lot of great BC filmmakers. I don't want to make it seem like it's a, it's a desert we're living in. Um, there's a lot of amazing creative people that are doing good projects. But, yeah, I think it's the money. I think it's, you know, when you're selling to a broadcaster and the broadcaster wants your project a certain way and they 
want you if they're calling the tune then you've got to dance That's basically true. so um you know if someone's writing the checks you're going to do what they what they want and you're going to try to uh, cater to their expectations mm-hmm. um and i think that can be a problem because you end up making the kinds of films that you think a broadcaster wants to see instead of the kinds of films that um, you want to make you want to make mm-hmm. um and i've been on a lot of those projects um before and you know they end up becoming a lot less than what they could have been right. um so you know we've gone all out we've made a film that um didn't compromise and i think it's great so you be the judge and we shall be when can people come out and see or here or how where <laughs> when why who well this coming saturday that's saturday december 6th that's saturday december 6th at 150 East 3rd Avenue, we are having our Office Farm party and fundraiser. Um, our Office Farm series part one is not quite finished, but we'll be showing a good amount of the film that night for people to see and judge and get excited about as well. We have a seven-piece mariachi band. That That's is. right. The only mariachi band in Vancouver mm-hmm. will be performing in order to raise Amazing funds. But you've also got a number of other things you're giving away. We do. Uh, Well, we have several auctions of uh, local producer, director, writing services from various people uh, in the film community, uh, artwork, um, and people that buy tickets in advance uh, get entered for some uh, limited edition film artwork and 12, that's one dozen, uh, (laughs) cupcakes, gourmet cupcakes from cococake.com. Boutique Ooh. cupcakes. So, so where can people get these advanced tickets? Well, they can go to my website, ethicalbacon.com, under media, and there's some contact info there. Great. Um, Officefarm at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. And, and there's uh, a Facebook site, I know. And there's uh, Facebook, blogger. Uh, almost every social networking media you can think of, they're there. Ethical Bacon, mm-hmm. Office Farm Series. Mm-hmm. And one. Office Farm Films as well. Yes. Um, no Twitter yet. Oh, well, you can tweet in the very near future, I'm <laughs> sure. Um, you you are not a twit yourself, but uh, you could be if you really <laughs> want it. <laughs> All right. Zach, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, I will be there on Saturday. That's Saturday, December 6th at the... Cafe Los Artistas, 150 East 3rd. That's 3rd and Main Street. And what time does it start? Doors at 7, show at 8. Fantastic. So make sure you make it out there. I'll be there. Zach will be there. Office Farm. Kevin, will Kevin be there? Kevin will be there. Kevin will be there. In a sense. In a sense? Oh, you'll see. Oh, and so will you. If you're there. Thank you so much, Zach. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. The Office Farm Film Series, Part 1, stars Billy Marchensky as Kevin, Sean Allen as The Old Gentleman, Carmen Grant as The Doctor, and James Wilson as Charlie. The film is by Zachary Rothman and John Pesotian. And the fundraising-slash-promotional party is at La Casa del Artista at 3rd and Main. So hope I hope all of you head on out there. Speaking of fundraising, a huge thanks to all of you brilliant people who called in to our recent funding drive here at CITR. Your generosity exceeded every expectation and broke every record we've had here at the station. We wound up with a total of amazingly $21,893 after our 
grand Biltmore finale. So thank you, thank you, thank you from everyone here at this station. We appreciate every penny. So um, also sticking with the CITR theme today, last night was the last semifinal for the Shindig, um, CITR's annual Battle of the Bands competition, which is held at the Railway Club every Tuesday night. That's where I caught up with Jordi Yao, the editor of Discorder magazine, Vancouver's alternative indie music rag. The Discorder turned 25 this year, and so Jordi and CITR are hosting a Big Birthday Bash this Friday at Hoko's. I asked Jordi to tell me a little bit more about the birthday party and about the Discorder, and I recorded this little piece. I hope you enjoy it. Hi, I'm Jordi Yao. I'm the editor of Discorder magazine. So, Jordi, there's a big event going on this Friday that celebrates the 25th anniversary of the Discorder magazine. Can you tell me a little bit about the his- what you know of the history of the Discorder? Uh, well, Discorder was started in 1983. Um, it's been put out by uh, CITR uh, 101.9, the same station that we're broadcasting on right now. Shocking. <laughs> um, um, it's been out there on the, on the streets for 25 years now. And for those people who may not be aware of the Discorder magazine, can you tell us what, in a couple sentences, what the Discorder is for those people who may have not read it before? Well, the Discorder is a music magazine that focuses on Vancouver's music scene. Um, there is some other stuff that we talk about too, like we cover, like we cover a little bit of film, a little bit of books, and, but like really it all ties back to Vancouver music. And when was the first time you read the Discorder, or when was the first time you became aware of the Discorder magazine in your own life, Jordi Out? Um, I first became aware of Discorder when I was in res in first year at UBC. Um, I sort of had always read Discorder up until, and then I ended up writing for Discorder when I met one of the editors. Like we worked Cat Siddle. And I worked together at the same, um, at UBC Housekeeping. Housekeeping? Does that mean you can make a mean bed? I can, I can make a mean bed. I, uh, I know the special corners, hospital corners. Hospital corners, my friend. <laughs> that, that's quite impressive. I, I don't think I've made my bed in years. But then again, I do have a duvet. And I feel like making a bed is essentially different when you have a duvet. Um... Yeah, that's true. It is, um, but if you have the sh- if you have the like the top sheet, you can still do the same stuff. Jordy, you became the editor, the new editor of the Discorder magazine earlier this year, right? In August. And why did you apply for the job, or why did you want to move up to that position from reporter status? Um, I'd actually always uh, like I'd, the last two times the job had come up. I'd wanted to apply at both those times too, but just the first time it came up, I was just about to go to school, like at a really intense program at Langara for journalism. No, wait, that was the second time. The first time it came up, I was busy for some other reason. I think I was in Ethiopia. A good reason to be unavailable for editing the Discorder. Yes, and I was, I was in Ethiopia doing volunteer work, so the first time the editorship came up, and Spike ended up getting it that time, and then Nat got it the time after that, and I just couldn't apply. Um, so I'd always wanted to be the, I'd, I'd wanted to be the editor of Discorder for a while, but uh, 
I love music and I love writing about music. If you could have the Discorder interview anyone, who would you want to feature? Um, I would, let's see, if I could interview anyone, anyone in the whole world. In the whole world, dead or alive? In the whole world, dead or alive. For Discorder, though. Okay. Well, there is no other publication. Well, okay. Okay. Um, I'm, just, I'm just saying that if it's for Discorder, then like you're sort of like following the mandate of Discorder a little bit more. So I wouldn't be like, well, in that case, I'll interview Einstein because he really wouldn't have <laughs> anything to say about, about Discorder magazine. You never know. He, he might have been a musical guy. He might have been, but I imagine he'd have more interesting to say, things to say about, about other stuff. The theory of relativity, etc. Yeah. Yeah, stuff like that. Okay, so back back to your choice. Do you, do you need another minute to think about it? Oh, you, no, you got one. Tom Waits. Really? Why? Because he's awesome. Like, long? are you a long-time fan forever? Or, like, just to be able to sit down in the room with him? What's the, the allure? Um, well, I've been a fan for a long time, and I also feel like of the people I'm a... F okay, and I know you said alive or dead, but I feel like I want to interview Tom Waits while he's still alive. I think he'll smell better, at least, if you interview him while he's alive. Well. <laughs> okay, Jordy, thank you very much for this interview. Um, tell us about the event on Friday. Okay, this Friday is Discord's 25th birthday party. It's at Hoko's, 7 p.m. It's an early thing. Um, there's gonna be karaoke, there's gonna be cake, a giant cake made by cake master extraordinaire uh, Darcy Omori and her team. And team, wow, that, it's gonna be a big cake. I'm not sure how big the team is for this cake, but it's gonna be at least Darcy and one other person, so. Team cake always tastes best. That's true. And um, so it's gonna be at Hoko's, we're all going to get out there and um, it's just like a lot of the old editors are coming out, um, at least four or five of them and uh, it's going to be cheap booze it's going to end early so that you can still go to the other shows because there's some really great shows happening that night Nardwar's curating an event uh, Margul Zine's opening are doing like uh, their opening night kickoff party at the sweatshop and um, doers are playing their last show with their with Sean Maxey drumming at the railway so like and there's some other thing I'm forgetting about. But there's lots of other good shows later that night. And go to those. But first, come to the Discorder party. All right. Well, I will definitely be there. Jordy will be there. And thank you, Jordy, for uh, talking with me today. You're welcome. Hoko's is at 362 Powell Street, and that party for the Discorder's 25th anniversary starts at 7 p.m. Now, tonight at the Fire Hall Arts Centre, choreographer and dancer Amber Funk Barton is debuting her first full-length piece, which is called Risk. Barton describes Risk as a physical and emotional journey of five 20-something-year-olds who are struggling with issues of identity, vulnerability, information saturation, and time. I was able to catch Ember last week on her cell phone, so apologies in advance for the sound quality of this piece. But uh, we had a short, com we had a long conversation of which I'm about to give you a short bit. 
But uh, that's on stage. This is Amber Funk Barton speaking to me on the Arts Report, CITR 101.9 FM. What inspired you to address this subject matter through movement and through dance? Um, I think it's a combination of things, really. Um, I think it's partially being a young person and also wanting to make dance that people of my generation could relate to because people my age don't really just drop everything and go see dance. You know, they're more likely to go to a hockey game or watch a movie, that type of thing. So I wanted to try and make a piece that speaks to my generation. Like, the way I see myself and the way I feel like I live my life um, artistically and as a person is basically kind of an observer anyways and seeing things and seeing how my 20s have progressed and all that kind of stuff and seeing my my peers and friends around me and um, just basically wanting to make a piece to have um, <clears throat> excuse me people feel that they're not alone, that we all feel these things in our 20s. And then it hit me the other day that, you know, what we experience, you know, basically in high school or in our 20s, it just, it's still the same thing whether we're in our 30s or 40s too. Like, it's just in different situations. Um, so it's not just for young people. Like, I feel like all the themes are universal, but it's kind of a way to reach out to uh, maybe a different age group or to present it in a different way. Um, also, by presenting it this way, I'm also interested in fusing different dance forms. So fusing jazz, fusing ballet, fusing hip-hop. So by using all those different kind of dance mediums, it makes it a bit more... Um, accessible to young people like some people feel they don't want to go to a modern dance show or a ballet ballet. yeah so trying to open up to young people by using various mediums of dance and music um to do that and then still having it transcend no matter what your age group that you know everybody feels peer pressure and everybody knows what it's like to be bullied and everybody knows what it's like to love somebody and not have it returned so all those kind of things are addressed but in a, you know, kind of a John Hughes high school kind of way. Right. Are those the main themes? I mean, you mentioned themes a minute ago, but like bullying and love, love gained, love lost. And just yeah, well, yes and no. Like, I, I, I wouldn't say it's so literal, but um, yeah, there's there's things that address peer pressure and bullying. And, and for me, it's, you know, when we're in groups, a lot of young people act one way, but then when they're on their own by themselves, they're a totally different person. And that risk or fear of being yourself out in public with your peer group and always wanting to be accepted. So I think, um, you know, for me, all the characters and all the performers deal with issues of um, vulnerability in themselves and trying to find themselves. And and I think that's a struggle, you know, no matter, it's more prevalent when we're young, like, late teens or in our 20s we're trying to find ourselves but I think it's always a reoccurring thing and I think it's interesting to bring that up to people no matter what their age is and so you mentioned the word risk which is the title of the piece mm-hmm. what 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 would you say are are the risks involved in, in in the piece or why did you choose risk as the title risk is a title for me it's um not necessarily the risks we take in behavior but the risks we don't take like uh for example you know it's for example it's a big risk to tell someone you love them that can be just as risky as bungee jumping or or that type of thing because it's it's your heart on the line so um when i was thinking about that i i was also thinking about how young people decide to deal with those situations um you know we don't really have a 
rite of passage in our society, like other cultures. So young people feel like they have to prove themselves somehow or have that type of risk in their lives to feel like they prove something. In my opinion, for example, there's, you know, the period of clubbing and partying and, and extreme sports and, and you know, those type of things to, to feel like people have reached adulthood or, or something like that. But for me, that's barely touched on. But for me, the primary thing is, you know, the emotional risks we do and don't take. And that usually ends up happening with relationships and how you deal with people. The risk being maybe you really do show yourself your true colors to people or maybe you don't. And maybe you really do, you know, confess to someone that you've loved them after all those years, but maybe you're just too scared to do it. And deciding do you not tell them or do you tell them? And then what do you do once that information's out there? So... Um, those are things I thought about when I was building the the themes of the piece. But and then in terms of physicality, just seeing how I could fuse so many different dance forms and take risks that way, and how fast we could dance, or how how much we could do in a short amount of time. Or so there's many different reasons why I decided. And then by calling it risk, it's quite a broad term, so I could fit however many different things I wanted to in that kind of terminology. Amber Funk Barton's Risk is opening tonight at the Firehall Arts Centre. That's at 280 East Cordova, and the show starts at 8 p.m. It's on stage only until this Saturday night, so be sure to check it on out. And finally on the program today, last week I sent my wonderful theatre critic, Paul Riviere, out to see the Laramie Project, which is now playing at the Havana Theatre on Commercial Drive. He brought me back this wonderful review. There seems to have been a blossoming of strong, vibrant theatre companies in Vancouver the last couple of years, and Fighting Chance Productions is definitely one of them. Their most recent effort, The Laramie Project, is brought to the stage by artistic director Ryan Mooney and is currently playing at the Havana Theatre until December 6th. The Laramie Project recounts the experiences of a New York City theatre group during their visit to the small town of Laramie, Wyoming. The group stayed in the town of 26,000 on three separate occasions in an effort to capture the town's reaction to the violent beating and torture of Matthew Shepard, an openly gay student at the University of Wyoming and a longtime resident of Laramie. The attack on Matthew Shepard in October of 1998 and his following death due to the severity of his injuries made international headlines. The incident put Laramie in the spotlight and Matthew Shepard's death became the inspiration for hate crime debates and rallies across North America. For those of you who haven't been to the Havana Theatre, it is a small black box theatre set behind the gallery at the back of the Havana restaurant. The intimate nature of the space is the perfect setting for this honest and thought-provoking play. The closeness to the performer is one of the aspects of the production that works extremely well. It reflects the personal nature of the play's quest to give an honest and insightful portrayal of the feelings and emotions experienced by the various citizens of Laramie. Each of the 12-member cast performs a multitude of roles that represent real-life people in the community. In Act 1, we are introduced to the people we will get to know throughout the play. This includes the university's drama teacher, an acting student from Matthew Shepard's class, an openly gay professor, a Catholic priest, the local sheriff, the surgeon that operated on Shepard, the head of the hospital, a local cab driver, the bartender of a nightclub, as well as friends of both Matthew Shepard and his attackers. What's interesting about the play is that it focuses on the reactions of the community 
rather than the response of the immediate family. In this way, the play allows the audience to gauge its own reactions to the events and attitudes that led to Matthew Shepard's death. Act One describes the theatre group's arrival in Laramie and the residents' response to being interviewed by the performers. It covers events up to the time of Matthew Shepard's beating. Act Two follows the reactions of the town to his death in the hospital, while Act Three covers the trial of his attackers and the town's effort to find some resolution and closure. I found it interesting that the title of the play, The Laramie Project, hints at the idea of experimentation, of coming at something from the outside in an effort to understand it. But in this regard, the play is no less sensational than any other media that exploited Matthew Shepard's tragic death. Hate crimes are a horrible reality in our society, but the play's strong anti-hate perspective prevents it from exploring the genesis of hate and the attitudes that create it. In the play, Matthew Shepard's attackers are portrayed as ignorant, callous, homophobic young men. We discover little else about them beyond what is publicly known as the play makes no inquiry into what might have given them motivation to attack Shepard. Like the rest of the town and the media at large, the play is content to simply denounce their actions without attempting to understand the ideas and the type of environment which encourages them to exist. Still, this was only a minor disappointment in an otherwise extremely enjoyable and compelling production. The cast, the entire cast, offers realistic, often entertaining and engaging portrayals of the people of Laramie. It is always interesting to see a dramatic production reflect the attitudes of individuals and communities and how these feelings group together to form public opinion. In the play, a young woman states that the citizens of Laramie don't want to admit that Laramie is that type of town. The Laramie Project helps us realize that most communities have the potential to be that kind of town, and crimes of violence and hate don't materialize out of nowhere, but surface through the everyday attitudes and opinions of individuals. Matthew Shepard's horrible torture and death happened before Columbine and before the attack of 9-11. The Laramie Project shows that these actions are allowed to exist when people look away rather than towards the destructive impulses within individuals and society. The play allows us to see that solutions don't come from a box, but are found when the communities become responsible and attentive to the care of the people that live in them. I also had the opportunity of going to the opening night of the Larry Project, and after the show, I had the opportunity to speak with uh, the artistic director, Ryan, and two of the cast members, Gene and Jeff. Uh, unfortunately, due to some uh, technical difficulties, I'm not able to bring you that review. But if you haven't uh, had a chance to get down and see the Larrabee Project at the Havana Theatre, I strongly suggest you do. For the Arts Report, this is Paul Riviera. Thanks, as always, to Paul for that review. And that's it for the Arts Report today. Thank you so much for tuning in. Um, if you'd like to get in touch with me, you can always shoot me an email right here at CITR. That's arts at CITR.ca. And otherwise, until next week, stay warm, take care, and I'll see you right back here at 101.9 FM for another edition of the Arts Report. Good night.
hey. Hey there. So, uh, it's been 24 hours. Got my money? Oh, I, you know what? Just give me till next Friday. I'll have it for you. Oh. Oh, that's funny. I could have sworn I said have it today. Yeah, I don't have it. Sorry. Oh, well, all right then. Mmm, that's good, OJ. Ah! Ah! Yeah, that hurt. Ah! That hurt. What the hell? Thank you to all the donors who pledged their financial support during the CITR on-air fund drive. We are moved by your generosity and thank you for enabling us to purchase new equipment and improve our programming. Do remember to stop by the station, pay your pledges, and pick up your prizes. We look forward to meeting you anytime between 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. on weekdays. Thank you again for your amazing response. Listen to our happy voices on the air, happier after we purchase new equipment for our studios. Thanks again. You got till 5 o'clock, you hear me? You got till 5 o'clock! You freaking psychopath! Uh, clean yourself up. <laughs> We are not 300 years ago or now. Things have moved on. You see the pictures in the, uh, in the press relating to apparently honest with integrity journalism talking about crime. And of course, the color of crime is often seen as black. And the terms that are used, which immediately take you to particular groups of individuals who happen to be black. That's David Devine, and this is the third season of Canadian Voices, a nationally syndicated radio series and podcast featuring lectures by thought-provoking Canadians. The program is offered free of charge to campus and community radio stations across Canada and is available online at canadianvoices.org. The series is produced by Kootenai Co-op Radio in Nelson, British Columbia. I'm Zoe Creighton. This edition of Canadian Voices features David Devine, the James R. Johnson Chair of Black Canadian Studies at Dalhousie University. He speaks on racial diversity, North America's strength or weakness. The James R. Johnston Chair in Black Canadian Studies is a national senior academic post covering all of Canada, based at Dalhousie University in Halifax, in recognition of the unique historical presence of black people in the area. The chair has a local, national, and international perspective based on the belief of a connection between black people and that their patterns of potential shared experience merit exploration. David Devine spoke on February 6, 2007, at a public lecture in Halifax, Nova Scotia. I think I'd like to essentially spell out right at the beginning what I'm going to try and do this evening. It's going to be very simple, and nothing of what I'm going to be saying will be new to those of you who are different in any particular way, because you will be able to relate, I'm sure, to some of the things that I am saying. And for those who feel they're not particularly different in any particular way, you might actually gain something from it in terms of trying to understand, perhaps, a little bit more fully um, how difference can actually add 
to the flavor as opposed to somehow doing something to the overall flavor which perhaps is not to your liking. So we're trying to enter into some sort of conversation, some sort of discourse in which we come out of it at the end feeling a little bit more enlightened and understanding and willing in fact to go the extra mile to touch one another in ways perhaps that we've not thought of doing or perhaps felt too frightened to do prior to. And I'm also going to suggest, as you can see um, by the, the title and the fact that I put strength first, that I actually do believe fundamentally that, that Canada has something unique to offer the world and that what it's trying to do in terms of multiculturalism, this attempt to make one out of many, is a laudable aim. And the weakness is essentially not, in fact, in the model, it's not in the goal, it's actually in the application of the model, the goal, to the reality of day-to-day -day lives of individuals who are fundamentally different, or seem to be fundamentally different. And so I'm going to move from there and essentially say a little bit about the James R. Johnston chair. I wish to um, thank the convener, uh, Barbara, for um, the introduction. But I feel it's very important just to set out in a nutshell what, a, what is the core reason for the James R. Johnston chair here at Dow, which is a national um, position and indeed increasingly international. The catalyst piece is really very, very important because you don't have a center of black Canadian studies in Canada. This is the first one. And it will, in fact, become and is increasingly becoming and being recognized as such as a center of excellence in black Canadian research. And I'll say a little bit more about that later on. Secondly, it has a fundamental role in trying to pull together and disseminate critical cutting-edge material on black Canadian experience, both from community sources as well as from more accepted, in quotation marks, scholarly um, sources. And again, more of that slightly later. And thirdly, which is very, very important, bearing in mind the, the, the beginning stages of black Canadian um, scholarship here in Canada, is to provide a vehicle, a crucible, a nursery, if you like, for emerging scholars from whatever background to gain uh, an experience and further abilities in trying to explore the histories, the stories, the experiences of black people of African descent located in Canada. These are some of the areas that the James R. Johnson chair during my tenure um, are concentrating. Um, black leadership, which is a critical issue here in, in Canada. Um, black community um, archives, which essentially is the stories uh, and experiences, narratives, um, the pulling together of our lives over hundreds of years is a critically important um, area of, of my work, and I'll say a little bit more about that later. I'll also talk a little bit more about uh, Under a Northern Star, um, likewise the promised um, land, 
and living past and present. Now, what you can see from that list to there is that essentially we're trying to pull together very, very important stories, most of which have not been told. So we are at a very, very important point in black Canadian scholarship. It is early days in terms of our histories, pulling them together into something.